Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and I am your host for Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted independent bookstore. My guest today is Randy Boyagoda, author of Original Print, published by the fine folks at Biblioasis. Randy, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Jason. Yeah, and Randy, I met you at the American Booksellers Association Winter Institute in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And the first three questions I have for you are going to be about the things that drew me to this book. The first being the marketing team at Biblioasis, specifically at the Winter Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about Biblioasis and how you connected with them? Sure. Biblioasis is a great independent press uh, based in Canada, based in, as we call it, South Detroit or uh, Windsor, Ontario. Mm-hmm. And they are, I would say, you know, on their way to being a kind of Canadian version of Grey Wolf, maybe eventually FSG, Faber. They write, uh, they, they bring out an incredibly, um, incredibly well-reviewed, received, and beautifully made works of literary fiction, poetry. They have a great translation series. I made the decision to publish original print with them when I had the opportunity to work with a man named John Metcalf, who is a legendary figure in Canadian publishing. In the 70s, he was working with a housewife who was just kind of publishing stories here and there, and he was encouraging her in her work, and her name was Alice Monroe. And since then, John has been very much committed to serious and kind of uncompromising literary fiction. I published my first two novels with Penguin and maintained a strong relationship with Penguin. But when I was working on this book and I let my editor at Penguin know what kind of book I wanted it to be, and she really kind of heard the the seriousness of the concerns in it, she said, you know, for the kind of book you're you're wanting to bring out, Randy, a a serious independent press like Biblioasis is the way to go, and I, I gladly went that way. Thank you, Randy. You're very lucky to have such a great team behind you, and I'm sure they yeah, feel... Yeah, Dan Wells, Casey Platt were with me in New Mexico. Excellent people. Yeah, I'm sure they feel very lucky to have you, too. And hey, Alice Monroe, I've heard that name before. Yeah, it's one of those <laughs> names, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, now, the second thing that drew me to your novel is the title, Original Prin. I'm a huge fan of, of Vladimir Nabokov, and Prin reminds me of Pnin, and there are some parallels between the two works, uh, most notably the backdrop of academia and everything that it entails. Was this an intentional illusion? I wish I could say that it was, but let me tell you that you are in good company. I remember chatting with you about this at a bar in New Mexico mm-hmm. uh, back in January. Salman Rushdie, who wrote a very nice uh, blurb for the novel, immediately responded the same way. And a lot of reviewers have also picked up on uh, the Nabokov. I love Nabokov's work. I think uh, Pale Fire is, for me, my, my favorite novel of his. But the book wasn't actually in my head, to be honest. Uh, original print is more of a play on original sin. So you know, the novel certainly has some religious concerns. And if anything, the novels that were kind of rolling around in my head while I was working on this were Kingsley Amos and Evelyn Waugh novels, not so much uh, Nabokov. But I'm, I'm glad for the connection. And, you know, the beauty of um, chatting with serious readers about your book is they kind of reveal genealogies that maybe you didn't, you weren't aware of. And so it puts the book in a different kind of conversation than you intended. And I think there's something kind of cool about that. Yeah, great. Thanks, Randy. Pillfire is my favorite Nabokov novel as well. Um, There you go. There you go. The third thing, Randy, that drew me to this novel was the epigraph by David Foster Wallace, a Mm -hmm. quote from Infinite Jest. And I feel that 
one who completes Infinite Jest must, as a rule, be intrigued by something that uses it as a jumping off point. Um, can you talk to us about that quote and why you chose it? Sure. Uh, first, let me join you in um, the being that community of people who have actually finished Infinite mm-hmm. Jest. As, as you know, and I'm sure many of your listeners know, one of the many crazy uh, plots at play in 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 uh, in, in Infinite Jest is uh, involves Quebec separatists mm-hmm. who are kind of wheelchair assassins, and at one point there's a conversation between uh, two of the two of the agents. I think it's off a rock in Arizona where they're kind of hanging there off a mountain or something like that. Mm-hmm. And one of the agents says to the other, "Perhaps in you is the sense that citizens of Canada." are not involved in the real root of the threat. And that line really spoke to me, Jason, because of the opening line of original Prin, which is eight months before he became a suicide bomber, Prin went to the zoo with his family. And the reason why those two played off each other for me was the sense that, you know, I'm really uh, pursuing in this novel of what it would mean for a otherwise bourgeois, you know, juice box dad, I think as a recent review described him, um, suddenly getting into a, a whole other kind of life and set of, of dark possibilities. So what does it mean for a, you know, a, a, a professor and married father of four living in kind of bourgeois East End Toronto to find himself eight months after going to the zoo with his family, a suicide bomber. In many ways, the the Wallace epigraph really gave me a kind of jumping off point to play against that very premise, that this is the last person someone might expect uh, to become a suicide bomber in the Middle East, a, a Catholic literary, literature professor living in East End Toronto. And so that's the relationship between the two. Thank you, Randy. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about this first line of your novel, which again is eight months before he first became a suicide bomber. Pran went to the zoo with his family. Um, this is one of the best first lines I have read in recent memory. Can you go? Thank you. You're welcome. Um, thank you for writing it. Can you go a little beyond this first line and set up the novel for our listeners? Sure. The book is about a middle-aged literature professor named Prin who is a Sri Lankan Catholic bike-riding dad living in the east end of the city. And two major things happen to him early in the novel. Uh, He has a cancer scare, and he goes into treatment, successful treatment for prostate cancer. And he finds out that his university is going to shut down unless it opens a satellite campus in the Middle East. At the same time, Prin is somebody who has a comfy guilt-ridden life in that he's, you know, kind of happy enough with with things as they are, but also senses that, you know, maybe there's more he's called to in his life than he's living in, you know, thinking about it even in uh, religious terms. And so those three things come together and Prin uh, emerges from his cancer treatment with a sense that he should do something more meaningful with his, with the time he has on this earth. And when he realizes that his university is going to shut down unless it opens a satellite campus, he volunteers to go to the Middle East, you know, to kind of help save his university, to do something meaningful with his faith. Uh, And he also goes, I should probably add, in the company of his sexy ex-girlfriend from graduate school. 
Thank you, Randy. Um, Listeners, we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsors, and I will be right back with Randy Boyagoto. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Randy Boyagoda, author of Original Print, published by Biblioasis. Randy, uh, we're going to go into a little more detail about that setup that you just gave us for this novel. Uh, faith and religion play an enormous role in this book, and I'm hoping you can talk to us about this aspect of Original Print. Yeah, I think the 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 book is really trying to make sense of what it means to be a religious believer in the here and now. Um, I love Marilyn Robinson's fiction. I think she's a beautiful writer, but there's something kind of, uh, quietly exotic about Marilyn Robinson's religious fiction in that, um, it's all about people struggling with religious questions 50 years ago in Kansas. And so for a contemporary reader, there's no kind of threat of identification. For a contemporary elite Anglophone reader, you can kind of imagine a time when somebody believed in God. Likewise, that same reader has no trouble, I think, uh, with uh, non-Christian belief, with kind of exoticized belief, whether it's perhaps native or indigenous or uh, one of the other world religions. I think my interest and challenge with this book in those terms is to write about a bloodstone-wearing, kale-eating urbanite who also profoundly believes in God. And that combination, I would say, is not nearly as immediately evident. And it's not a smells and bells novel, right? One of the challenges that I think I had in writing the book was that my, uh, my editor, who I add as an atheist, said that his initial problem with the book was that it was not theologically serious enough. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, you know, it's all smells and bells and, you know, ethnic family, Catholic stuff. But the reader needs to believe that Prin believes in God. How does that change his sense of the world, of possibility, of the stakes of his decisions? Those are really um, active and important questions for me as a writer with this book, which is, I should add, probably the first in a trilogy. And so it's a, it's a playing out of uh, the experience of faith in contemporary life. And that involves, I would say, you know, two things. It involves ordinary daily life and how faith figures there, and then an awareness that elsewhere in the world, as I am speaking to you in this podcast, there are people dying for believing in the same, the same Christian tradition, the same God. How do those two things connect together? Well, the novel really tries to explore that. Yeah, and I, I took it pretty seriously, Randy. And speaking of the stakes of his decision, there's also a decision about a stake, right? Mm, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, there's, there's these kind of moments in the book where you also see the absurdities 
of you know, being a religiously committed person. So on a at a Good Friday victory dinner that Prince celebrates with his father after the two of them successfully uh, win a uh, father-son pickleball tournament, Prince is faced with the question of whether he should eat steak to celebrate with his father because it, his father wants to celebrate. You can't think of any other way to do it than to go to a steakhouse. But it's Good Friday, you know, the, one of the very few days in the calendar, in the, the Catholic calendar, where you are absolutely not supposed to eat meat. So how does love figure there, right? Do you, do you please one father or another, as it were? So I, I like to kind of play with moments like that, which are real, you know, if small, but they're real. They're, they're felt in a real way. Yeah, and, you know, speaking of that pickleball tournament, that's another uh, parallel that I sort of saw with Infinite Jest and its um, mm. obsession with tennis. I don't know if that yes. was intentional or not. Well, I, you know, I read Infinite Jest uh, straight through finally, after mm. trying for years and years, the summer I was working on this. Mm. And I, I really, um, I think I, I really found impressive how much more than merely tennis, Wallace was able to kind of put into uh, the culture of tennis and the, the playing of tennis throughout that novel. And so my smaller version of that is this pickleball tournament, which plays out on Good Friday, and I, I write it so that Prynne basically goes through the passion of the Christ on Good Friday, right? The kind of stations of the, the cross, is, when he falls, his father whips him with his pickleball racket to get back up. It, I try to play out all of the kind of experiences of Christ's Good Friday uh, in a pickleball tournament, and absolutely, I was thinking about Wallace while I was doing that. Nice. Thank you, Andy. Um, next, let's talk about Prynne's marriage. Prynne, uh, who, as you mentioned, has been diagnosed with prostate cancer, blames his wife for his diagnosis because <laughs> because she likes to sleep with her leg draped over him, which he believes may have caused something in his body to shift around or gather. Um, can you tell us about Prynne's relationship with his wife? Sure. Uh, what, what you're describing there is kind of Prynne's secret thoughts, right? And And He's not convinced that his wife Molly caused his prostate cancer, but it probably didn't help that she likes to sleep with her leg draped across him. Whether he likes to think of it, you know, as her leg draped across him as, you know, Christ carrying a cross. You know, he has this kind of inflated, melodramatic sense of himself uh, in religious terms. And it certainly plays out in a, in a, a happy, if let's say sedentary marriage where you know, at one point, I, I think I make, I make a reference to the fact that Prynne has, you know, all of these kind of intense and full understandings of marriage and of family and, you know, kind of humors his wife and children who are actually the ones humoring him while he has all of these intense ideas, right? Um, Molly is a woman that he met while in graduate school in Milwaukee, uh, while volunteering in a church basement. He meets her uh, shortly after breaking up with his uh, grad school girlfriend, who was, you know, basically the exact opposite of Molly, kind of all sharp angles, uh, a Jewish uh, atheist, you know, who's completely ironic about everything. And Molly, by comparison, is earnest, sincere, a serious Catholic, and kind of probably in a reactive way embraces that and doesn't really see Molly for who she is, I think. Uh, in the novel, but instead sees her, you know, as a as a almost like a, a, a the wife, the good Catholic wife. And in many ways, the challenge of my novel is to see the world through Prince's eyes, but also to let the reader know that um, I know there's more to Molly than than Prince sees there. 
Thanks, Randy. Um, next, I want to talk about Prin's career. He is a leading scholarly expert on representations of seahorses and other marine life in Canadian literature. Most <laughs> importantly, it seems, on the correlation between seahorses and penises in Michael Ondaatje's The English Patient. Um, I need to mention that this book is often at times hilarious, and as a victim of academia myself, this description of Prin's specialty made me laugh out loud every time. Okay. Um, can you talk to us about Prin's work? Sure. Uh you know, Prin is a Sri Lankan Canadian. And as you can imagine, for a Sri Lankan Canadian, you know, Michael Andachi looms very large. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm really kind of making making light of there is, is this idea that all of Prin's academic career is based on five or six words in the English patient, where Andachi compares the English patient's sleep, uh, penis to a sleeping seahorse and Prin has tried to make an entire academic career out of finding other sea and marine life references in Canadian literature. Amazingly, in the meantime, his university is going to shut down, right? I'm, I'm kind of, or it's being taken over by consultants. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I'm you know, really kind of playing with in the book is this juxtaposition of uh, a professor kind of a, obsessed with incredibly abstruse and small matters while business people basically take over the university and turn it into a, you know, um, basically a degree mill for a a corrupt Middle Eastern petrostate. And these two things come together when Print has to kind of be part of what that, what that effort is when he goes to the Middle East and while there, he's, he's eventually asked to give a lecture, and he thinks it's going to be a lecture on his work, and it turns out to be a kind of bad TED talk on Kafka's metamorphosis as a kind of um, a source of, of hope and happiness and motivation for people. Yeah, thank you, Randy. That was one of the, um, the curiosities of this novel for me is how uh, seahorses and, and penises and the English patient turned into Kafka's metamorphosis. But... Um, <laughs> Pretty Kafka-esque, I guess, in the end. Um, Finally, maybe circling back again to uh, David Foster Wallace, you mentioned the sponsorship of items fairly often in this novel, original print. Some shoes are LeBron-endorsed basketball sneakers, and some are non-endorsed running (laughs) shoes. Uh, The fact that they are non-endorsed being seemingly important enough to mention. what do you mean to highlight by drawing readers' attentions to these sponsorships or lack thereof? I, well, I think I'm, I'm kind of pointing out in many ways uh, the, the commodification of our daily lives and how, how much we kind of depend on or seek affiliation, belonging, a sense of identity through advertising and when you're, you know, when you're writing a, a novel, you can kind of have a little bit of fun with this. And I'm not sort of holding it up simply as a source of, uh, of ridicule, but you know, it, it, it's, it matters, let's say to a poor South Asian immigrant that Prince sees in a, uh, you know, a kid, uh, an immigrant kid in a kind of poor East end ethnic church in Toronto going up for communion in LeBron James uh, endorsed running shoes. I mean, that's, that's probably a source of great pride for that kid, even if at the same time we might know that it's kind of unfortunate he's he's you know kind of already uh, dependent on or fully kind of imbricated by the commodification, the corporate commodification of our lives. Elsewhere, Prin meets uh, you know a kind of uh, a northern version of a red state dad 
who is wearing kind of clearly unendorsed running shoes. And it's a way that juxtaposition is a way for me to kind of say a little bit, I think, just about how what we wear, what we consume, what we wear, these are all markers of identity, of affiliation, of commitment. And sometimes we're very aware of them, sometimes we're not, sometimes we're too aware of them, but I want to put those things in kind of conversation with all of the other kinds of markers that we have in our lives, whether they're religious or familial. Um, it's, it's, it's doing all that and then also doing it with a certain amount of kind of fun at the same time. Thank you, Randy. And as you mentioned earlier, this book is the first of an anticipated trilogy. Is there mm-hmm. anything that you can tell us about your future plans? Sure, I can tell you a couple of things. Um, I'm, right now I'm working on the, the successor to original print. Uh, if you are interested, there'll be a teaser of it in uh, the summer fiction issue of The Walrus Magazine. Nice. And uh, what I'll tell you simply about the next one is that um, it is set at a Dante amusement park in an opioid-ravaged small town in Indiana, and Print is hired by an evangelical millionaire to help build the park. Oh, nice. Um, my wife went to grad school in Indiana, and they marketed in their town's brochure that the uh, the Walmart there was their main attraction. And, um <laughs> That same Walmart also blew up eventually because there was a meth lab in the photography oh. studio. So, no way. <laughs> yeah, really strange. But That's amazing. I'll remember that for a future book. <laughs> yeah, please do. And Randy, would you like to read us a passage from Original Print? Thank you. I'd love to. I'll read the opening paragraph. All right. Eight months before he became a suicide bomber, Print went to the zoo with his family. Puffy and brightly balaclavaed, The six of them fanned across an empty parking lot. Ahead of them was a billboard advertising the zoo's newest additions. Two furry gifts from China snuggled in the smiling prime minister's lap, chewing bamboo shoots that pointed in perilous directions. Prin experienced a sympathetic twinge in his own groin. This was the day to tell them about the diagnosis. Thank you so much, Randy. This is a wonderful book, and I really hope that you listeners will pick it up. I have been speaking with Randy Boyagoda, author of Original Print, published by Biblioasis. Randy, thank you for joining me. Jason, thank you for an excellent conversation. Once again, I would like to thank Randy Boyagoda for joining me. Original Print can be purchased in-store and online at www.quailridgebooks.com while supplies last. If you're a writer who wants to explore your craft, receive feedback on your work, and make new writing friends without the pressure and expectations of a university writing program, then check out the Redbud Writing Project. This new school offers in-person classes and workshops in short story writing, novel writing, memoir, submitting, publishing, and more at community locations in Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. Visit redbudwriting.org to learn more and sign up. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookend.